So let's try some of this plov. How is yours, Sophia? It's so nice. How about you? Um, you know, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the best cook, so... <laughs> oh, no. At least you tried. I gave it a go. You know, I followed a recipe. 10 out of 10 for effort. Welcome to this episode of the Post-Soviet Press Pod's 10 Minutes On series, where, in each episode, we focus on one of the 15 countries of the former Soviet Union, covering the essential basics, as well as things like language, culture, history, and the biggest news stories affecting the country today. And we'll be squeezing it all into just about 10 minutes. Your hosts today are me, James Bolton-Jones. And me, Sophia Berner-Sefi. And in the next few episodes, we'll be looking at the countries of Central Asia. And today we focus on Uzbekistan. To get us in the mood, we've cooked up some homemade plov. Uh, Sophia, can you tell our lovely listeners about plov? Though served all over Central Asia, plov is a national possession in Uzbekistan. Plov to Uzbeks is like pasta to Italians. It's cooked by frying pieces of meat, grated carrots, onions, raisins and chickpeas in oil and serving with rice and sometimes with roasted garlic and a hard-boiled egg as well. It is typically only available at lunchtime and is popular at weddings and other large celebrations when huge quantities are cooked in a single dish, a kazan. Ploft is washed down with green tea which helps to cut through the muscle fat. In Tashkent, Uzbekistan's capital, a great place to try plov is the plov centre, though by midday all the plov is sold out so you have to be there early. In 2004, I had my first plov in Tashkent, and I have been obsessed ever since. Well, for the meantime, I and probably most of our listeners can only dream about eating plov in Tashkent, but at least I've got some Aldi green tea to wash down my uh, my own substandard homemade plov. Before we get into the history, culture and current affairs of Uzbekistan, let's cover some basics. So, Safir, as someone who's actually lived in Uzbekistan, tell us some basic facts that you think everyone should know about the country. Uzbekistan is one of two doubly landlocked countries in the world, meaning all its neighbours are also landlocked. So you have to cross two national borders to get to an ocean. And just in case this ever comes up for listeners in a pub quiz, the other doubly landlocked country in the world is Liechtenstein. Uh, what else can you tell us about Uzbekistan, Sophia? Population-wise, around 30 million people live in the country, over 70% of whom speak Uzbek, which is the official language. Other languages spoken include Russian and Tajik. In terms of religion, almost 90% of people are Muslim. Okay, great. And can you say anything in Uzbek, Sophie? And what does that mean? Greetings to all. I hope you all have a great start to your day. Let's turn to history now. Uzbekistan became an independent state in 1991 when the Soviet Union disintegrated. But what are the origins of the idea of an Uzbek nation? The idea of an independent Uzbek nation emerged following the Russian Empire's conquest of Central Asia in the second half of the 19th century. A nascent national movement called Jadidism sought to create a modern Uzbek nation involving a very modernist interpretation of Islam. According to the Jadids, the Uzbek nation had its roots in the Timurid dynasty. What exactly was the Timurid dynasty? Listeners might have heard of a famous historical figure called Timur, also known as Tamerlane, who was the founder of the Timurid dynasty, which was established in the 14th century and had its capital in Samarkand, a city which is found in modern-day Uzbekistan. Timur was particularly well-known as a ruthless military leader, and his conquests ranged from modern-day India and Russia to the Mediterranean. A high culture also flourished in the empire, and the Jadids imagined the language of this culture, called the Chagatai language, to be the Uzbek language. Talking of famous military leaders, didn't Genghis Khan also conquer Central Asia? He certainly did, and modern-day Uzbekistan became part of his Mongol empire. Perhaps you can remind listeners who Genghis Khan was. 
Sure, so Genghis Khan is one of the most famous military commanders of all time, who consolidated disparate tribes in what today is Mongolia before leading them onto vast conquests extending across Asia and even reaching the Adri Adriatic Sea around modern-day Croatia. But what came before Genghis Khan on the territory of today's Uzbekistan, Sophia? Well, around the 1st century BC, the land of today's Uzbekistan, as well as Central Asia more generally, was part of the famous Silk Road, a long trading route connecting China with the Middle East and the Roman Empire. What is now Uzbekistan was more or less right in the middle of this route. We should also note that later on, around the 9th and 10th centuries, the Persian Samanid dynasty dominated modern Uzbek territory and turned one of its cities, Bukhara, into an important centre of Islamic culture. Right, so when were the borders of today's Uzbekistan drawn? The key date to remember is 1924, which is when the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic was created. Prior to that, there had been a gubernia or province of the Russian Empire called Turkestan, which was renamed the Turkestan Soviet Republic in 1920 by the Bolsheviks, who had managed to gain control over Central Asia after they came to power following the 1917 Russian Revolution. The Turkic Soviet Socialist Republic was dissolved in 1924 and split into five ethno-territorial republics, one of which was the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic, which would go, roughly go on to constitute the territory of modern-day Uzbekistan and when it became independent in 1991. That whistle-stop tour through Uzbek history brings us to the moment it becomes an independent state in 1991. What are some key points our listeners should know about Uzbekistan's recent history, Sophia? The figure who has dominated this period is Islam Karimov, who was the country's first president from 1991 until his death in 2016. The president since 2016 has been Shavkat Mizoyev, who has been prime minister since 2003 before becoming president. Karimov, from 1989, actually had been the leader of the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic, which was part of the Soviet Union, and in 1991 he was elected as Uzbekistan's first president. And what sort of leader was Karimov? He has been generally viewed as a ruthless authoritarian leader with no toleration for dissent. He won independent Uzbekistan's first presidential election in 1991, but the vote was apparently rigged in his favour. Most infamously, state forces killed hundreds of protests in the city of Andijan in 2005. Okay, and what can you tell our listeners about Gulnara uh, Karimova, Islam Karimov's daughter? So, Karimova had a sprawling business empire and was also a fashion designer and singer, but her career shuddered to a halt when she was detained in 2014 by Uzbek security forces and later charged with money laundering. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2017, and though this was reclassified to house arrest after a few months and reduced to five years, in 2020, she received an additional 13 years and four months in prison. Let's talk about culture in Uzbekistan now. Uzbekistan is a land of contrasts and is famed for its place on the ancient Silk Road route, which we touched upon earlier. Though it's a new nation, it has a rich culture whose roots date back centuries and is the product of the diverse set of peoples and cultures that lived on the land that is Uzbekistan today. It's certainly true that Uzbekistan is home to many cultures, but it's rather interesting to note that after Uzbekistan gained independence in 1991, they set about creating a new narrative of nationhood. A cultural heritage based on national heroes such as Tiamor and Ali Sher Navoi was established. Those chosen heroes have represented an attempt to ground the history of the Uzbek nation in a past which extended beyond the founding of the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic in 1924. That's fascinating, and it certainly is extraordinary to see the integral role these historical figures have played in constructing a national and cultural identity today. As we've already mentioned, Timur, tell us a bit more about Ali Sher Navoi. Ali Sher Navoi is referred to as a father of Uzbek literature. He is considered by many to have initiated the Uzbek literary tradition in the 14th and 15th centuries. 
Ali Shenavoy was like the William Shakespeare of Uzbek language, whose tales and verses were spread by travellers and storytellers on the Silk Road. The Ali Shenavoy State Opera and Ballet Theatre in Tashkent is named in his honour. It seems he's had a, a really big influence on Uzbekistan's culture. What about traditional Uzbek music and art? Classical Uzbek music, known as Shashmatkom, meaning six modes, has evolved for over 10 centuries across Central Asia, combining a unique way of singing with literature. Numerous musical schools dedicated to this type of music were found in Bukhara, a city in south-central Uzbekistan. They were influenced by developments in musicology, poetry, mathematics and Sufism. Have the newer generations continued these cultural traditions or have they created anything new? The new generations share strong interest in art and literature. The Ilkom Theatre, founded in 1978, puts on both classics and contemporary plays, often with a critical take on pressing social issues. Also, the Stihia Electronic Festival, which is like a free techno rave, is held in a ship graveyard in the middle of the Aralkum Desert in Uzbekistan. So that brings us up to the present day. In June, President Mirzayev made an official visit to Tajikistan, where he met with his Tajik counterpart, President Amamali Rahman. Did anything interesting happen and what did they talk about? The main things discussed were expanding economic ties and building two hydroelectric power plants on the Tajikistan side of the Zarafshan River, an important river on the border between the two countries. This seems like a proposed alternative to the Rogan Dam issue, which has been a sensitive topic between Uzbekistan and Tajikistan because it would significantly reduce Uzbekistan's access to water supplies for cotton irrigation. And why is this significant? It's significant because cotton is Uzbekistan's primary export accounting for 60% of all foreign trade and 45% of employment. Cotton production is a water-intensive industry, and Uzbekistan fears a completion of the dam will threaten this industry. On the other hand, in energy poor Tajikistan, the electricity generated by the Rogan Dam would provide a secure and sustainable flow of cheap energy, aiding their chronic energy shortage and assisting Tajikistan's economy, which is currently one of Central Asia's weakest. So what would you say is the wider significance of this meeting then? This trip demonstrated a turning point in Uzbek-Tajik relations, especially since President Rahman of Tajikistan presented President Mirzoyev with a First Order Zarintod State Award in recognition of impeccable services towards strengthening interstate relations. Right, so it seems ties are improving. What about his credentials for reforms at home? Mirzoyev has introduced changes that were unimaginable until recently, improving relations with the neighbouring states being one of them, while also liberalising the foreign currency market to attract investment. What about the domestic political situation? In the run-up to the October 2021 presidential elections, it seems that the core of the political system in Uzbekistan remains the same. No real oppositional parties so far have been allowed to run. On 21st of June, the Truth and Justice Party were denied registration because, according to Uzbekistan's Justice Ministry, the party failed to collect the 20,000 signatures legally required for registration. Also, the presidential candidate of the opposition IRK party, the singer Jahongir Otajanov, was mobbed by an aggressive group of around 20 men and women at his home during a meeting with IRK representatives on the 26th of May. Well, that seems like hopes for political liberation may be dampened then. It's too soon to tell, but it seems to have paved the way for an unimposed presidential election, guaranteeing Mirzoyev a second term in office. So, Sophia, what would you say are the main challenges facing Uzbekistan in the future? Well, with Mirzoyev's new direction for Uzbekistan, small improvements have been made. His efforts to open up to the outside world, build relations with neighbouring states, and take steps to improve Uzbekistan's human rights record, such as a closure of the notorious Jasalik prison, longest symbol of Uzbekistan's torture epidemic and imprisonment of government critics, has surprised us and have contributed to a sense of hope among many ordinary Uzbeks about the possibility of a change not witnessed in decades. But questions remain over the long-term intentions of the new leadership. 
whether Uzbekistan has actually entered an era of openness will depend on whether freedoms will be tolerated and whether genuine opposition parties and independent candidates can participate in elections. So far, opposition parties have run into the same war as their predecessors. Therefore, change in Uzbekistan has been dramatic, but certainly not complete. Well, that's just about all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for listening and keep an eye out for the next three episodes, which will all focus on the other countries of Central Asia. 